You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Gracious Father, who are we? We are your children, and you love us. You've not abandoned us. You've not left us in this dark world without light and love and goodness. Thank you for Galatians. Thank you for its crystal focus on putting our faith in you. And so, Lord, as we continue to study, we pray that the Holy Spirit will be our real teacher. And we praise your name for your promise to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in chapter 4 um, of the book of Galatians, and we're at verse 6, I believe. That's where I marked it. And we are going to continue. Now, this is, uh, it's, there's not any part of Galatians that I just, I was sitting contemplating it, just reading it, thinking about it, and you see new angles. And the problem is that when you write a book or a workbook, then those new angles aren't, you can't put them back in there. So anyway, but that's good. You know, it's like I said yesterday, there's always more and more light to burst from the Word of God. And uh, we can thank, thank the Lord for that. All right, um, Paul is at this point is still telling to the Galatians in this letter, again, reaffirming who he is, that he is an apostle. He's not somebody that's just made this up. He spent three years with Jesus through Revelation. So he's got the same training as the other 12 apostles. Now he's gone at least once to see Peter. He's gone back up to see John and James just to make sure that they're coordinated together and that they are not teaching something that they are not uh, in, in harmony with. And we had Titus yesterday. And the reason we know the apostles for sure were in harmony is because they did not force Titus to be circumcised. And uh, if, they, if they had forced that, then they wouldn't have been in harmony. But they didn't. And he's a gospel preacher. He's raising up churches, ordaining people, all those kinds of things. So that's kind of where we left off yesterday. And we left off going through the whole issue of the circumcision. And somebody asked me about that quote that I gave you. That is in that book. And um, it's not a quote from Ellen White. It's not a quote from anywhere. It's just what the good Lord put in my head to help explain that. Because a lot of people just don't understand it. It's a little bit of a sensitive kind of a subject. So, But if, um, if some of you want me to, I can probably isolate that and send it to you, email or something, if you'd like to have it that way. All right. Now, let's look at verse 4. And uh, he's, he's talk, he just got through with Titus, verse 4. And this occurred because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth, we talked about that a little bit yesterday, to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So what is this liberty and what is this bondage? Now, if you talk to your friends, sometimes the evangelicals, they will tell you, oh, that bondage is the Ten Commandments. Well, how in the world can keeping God's Ten Commandments be bondage? Where's the bondage in not lying? I think there's freedom in telling the truth. Don't you think so? There's freedom in not hating somebody. 
Uh, there's freedom in all of those Ten Commandments are really the laws of freedom, and I'll get more into that uh, as we go into it. But this whole, this whole thing is, a, is a, um, uh, a misunderstanding. So what he's talking about simply is that these Judaizers who are Christians, who believe in Jesus, but they have not been able to let go of that earthly sanctuary with all of its rituals. They just haven't been let, able to let go. And for them, it's Jesus plus these rituals, particularly circumcision, which was the gateway into being Jews. And the other thing you have to remember, these Pharisees, you have to remember the thing they're operating in, these Christian Pharisees, and that's who they are. Christian Pharisees, they, they are being uh, persecuted and pushed away from their former brethren, and they want to win them, and they have got it in their head that they'll never be able to win them unless they can convince them that Christianity is a legitimate form of Judaism. Follow me? So the way into Judaism is by, from, for Gentiles is by means of circumcision. So that's why they are so adamant about this and, and missionary about it. These guys are, are traveling around following the Apostle Paul. How would you like to be the Apostle Paul and have him do that to you? Wouldn't be fun. Uh, some of us who do evangelism um, know that what, what that's like sometimes. But the point is that they were pretty zealous about this. And so Paul is helping the Galatians to know that he's already dealt with these folk. He dealt with them in Jerusalem, but now, of course, they've shown up in Galatia, and he's trying to make sure that they get it, uh, get it cleared up. So this liberty is the liberty that we have in Christ, who, number one, forgives our sins, justifies us, empowers us, and we do not have to do anything to earn justification and his salvation. Isn't that good? But it's a bondage. So, I mean, you think about this. If you think that you've got to do X, Y, and Z in order to gain salvation, what are you going, if you're zealous, what are you going to do? You're going to work at it and work at it and you're going to say did i get it right is it going to be accepted am i going to be that that's exactly the mindset that these people went through this this judaism and that's why they wouldn't carry a handkerchief on sabbath they had to sew it to their garment because they were trying so hard to make sure that they qualified hallelujah we're not under that kind of bondage much of the pagan world's under that bondage. It's a different kind. It's basically, the same. we'll see it's all, really all the same kind of thing. But what do they do? They run across hot coals hoping that somehow, even in Christianity, there are many people who just feel like, you know, somehow I've got to qualify. Listen, the only thing that will qualify any of us is our faith in Jesus and what He's done for us. And He doesn't leave us just there. He also empowers us. Now, the law is important. Don't let anybody tell you that. God gave it Himself. It's important. But it's how it functions. 
And even, even as um, precious Seventh-day Adventists that I've talked to, through the years, I had somebody, I don't know, a year or two, three ago, somebody came up to me and they were struggling with some kinds of lifestyle issues. I'm not going to say what it was. It doesn't matter. And they just were worried about whether they could ever get qualified. Lifestyle is important. If I were your pastor, I'd preach on a lot of stuff about lifestyle. I'd, I had a large church one place, and I loved them all. But they wrote a poem about me when I left. It was really a nice poem. I wish I could find it. But they told me how much they loved me, and then they told me how much I stepped on their toes. But that's what gospel work should do. So qualification for justification and salvation gives us a liberty. And praise God, we don't want to return to bondage. All right, let's, um, let's, go, let's go ahead here and let's look down at verse, at verse 5. I did there. You're following chapter 2, verse 5. To whom we did not yield, to these Judaizers, while he's in Jerusalem, we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So you could say, Paul, you're kind of hard-headed, aren't you? I mean, that's a pretty tough statement. He's like, I'm not going to bother with I, I didn't fool around with these guys even for an hour. Why? And, and earlier he said, you know, if you preach a different gospel, if an angel from heaven show, or if I show up and preach a different gospel, let them be anathema. So why is he so adamant? Now, if any of you remember yesterday, you know the answer to that. Anybody want to venture an answer? Let's see if I was a good teacher yesterday. Okay, I don't know what happened to my mic people here, but just speak up real loud, and I'll try to hear you, and I'll repeat it. Zealous? Zealous. Oh, zealous. Now, why, why was it that Paul was so adamant? Okay, what's that? Yeah, exactly. There's only one gospel. He's, he's not going to compromise with these people. He doesn't have to compromise with them. It, this is not, okay, let's make peace, and I'll, you, I'll share this part, and you share that. No. There's nothing to compromise. There's nothing to share. There's no, there's no dialogue needed. There's only one gospel. It cannot be compromised. Paul's not going to compromise it. There's a lot of things we should talk about and be more, what's the word I want, you know, understanding. that. But this is not one of them, so to speak. All right, then verse, um, verse 6. But from those who seemed, he's talking about the apostles, to be something, whatever they were. Almost sounds a little disrespectful, but uh, the Jewish culture... We're called Gentiles, and the word gentle comes from the word Gentile. 
because there's a little bit more culturally, somebody's going to call me on this, I'm sure, <laughs> but stereotyping, you know, everybody hates that nowadays. But um, the Jews are a little bit more forthright, a little bit more direct. That doesn't mean they're unkind. Look at the way Jesus talked to his mother, and that was a, actually respectful. Uh, but for us, our ears don't handle that too as easy. So it doesn't mean he doesn't like these folk, and he's not considered them his brethren. But there is a good point here, and we want to do, to make. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. And here's the, here's the principle. God shows personal favoritism to no man for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Why would he say that? Why would you say that about the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John or the Apostles who walked three years with Jesus? Why would you say that? Yeah, they, they, needed, they needed the gospel just like everybody else. That minister that has all that talent and preaches so well, at the end of the day, he's no different from you. He needs the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Even the apostles. Even the mother of Jesus. Every one of them. If Mary, and she's not, she's sleeping in the hills of Ephesus, Ephesus waiting for the Lord to come. But if she were alive and walked in here, we'd say, oh, we'd all, everybody would want to talk to her, but... She's no different than you. Even though Jesus was her son, she needed him to save her for eternity. All right. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, that's a way of saying the Gentiles, and the gospel of the circumcised, another way of saying Jews, was to Peter. And then verse 8, he worked effectively through both of us. Verse 9. I'm not going to cover every nuance. The book gets into every nuance practically, but we won't have time for that here. Verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, and they were, by the way, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they had an agreement. Paul was not operating in a vacuum. He didn't jump up and say, I'm going... No, he operated with the apostles. They gave him their blessing and sent him on his way. So do we need organization? Do we need to work together? Now, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be what's the word I want, dictatorial kinds of things, but it should be a cooperative working together. In fact, Ellen White says to conference presidents, I probably shouldn't say this. Some of you remember when I forgot to do this. So somebody might have said amen, but they didn't, so I'm okay. <laughs> but anyway, just having a little fun here uh, together. But she says, you know, that really uh, conference presidents should be endeavoring to collaborate and, and get people to cooperate together. That's, that's my words for it. And that's what they were doing in the early church. All right. Verse 11. Now this gets into something really, this is, this is really something. So they've gone to the Gentiles. Obviously Antioch is a very important uh, place there. And I want to get down to the, the verse here. 
And while they're there, they have a lot of converts. Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. Great missionary center for Christianity. And they were making lots of converts. Paul and Barnabas were at the heart of all of that. Barnabas actually started it, went and found Paul, got Paul to come in and help him out. So they, this is a great spot. And Peter shows up, and they're having a great time together. And Peter is eating with the Gentiles. They're all uncircumcised. They're Gentiles. They're eating together. They're fellowshipping together. They're all week long. They're having, I don't know if it's a week or whatever it was. They were just having a wonderful time together. People were being, converse being added to the church. And then these Judaizers show up. And what does Peter do? He says, um, <clears throat> oh, uh, well, you Gentiles, you better eat over there. We, we, uh, we, we Jews will eat over here. How would you feel about that? How would it make you feel? This thing was so pernicious that's the right word. That Paul says in Galatians in a few verses that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Not Barnabas! The son of encouragement. Barnabas! Who had been side by side with Paul and had all these converts that they had had. Barnabas! Barnabas separates himself from his Gentile brothers and sisters, and refuses to eat with them. Now, this next verse shows you the intestinal fortitude of the Apostle Paul. We owe so much to the Apostle Paul. This is a critical moment in the early church. I cannot explain to you how critical this moment is. This is in the infancy of the church. Now, listen Listen to verse 11. And when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Whoa. I wasn't there. I don't know that Paul raised his voice. I don't think they had a shouting match. I don't think that's the kind of thing. But I think Paul stood up and he tells us what he said and why he said it. And we'll get into that. Here we go. Verse 12. For certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing, fearing, underline the word. What was he fearing? Those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him. These are Jews that are with Paul. These are Christian Jews. And the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, verse 14, said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? 
Why is this such a critical, critical moment in, um, in the church? Let me ask you a question. How much influence did Peter have? He had a lot of influence. A lot of influence. And you can see it. We know it because even Barnabas went over that way. But who had more influence over Peter? The Judaizers. Because he's fearing them. What does that word fearing mean to you? I'll tell you what it means. It means that Peter had not got over playing politics. He was a sanguine. He liked people. People liked him. I like sanguine people. I've got enough sanguine in me too. So I know some of the pitfalls it can bring. But he's a sanguine. If you got around Peter, he'd slap you on the back, want to talk to you, make connections with you. He's just going to connect with everybody he can connect to, any way he can connect. And he's really concerned about his reputation. And his position in the church. After all, he has to deal with these baths back in Jerusalem. And he's sometimes sympathetic to their position that they want to win their fellow Pharisees because they want to make Christianity a compartment of Judaism. It was a terrible moment for the early church. Paul does not waste words, he's firm. And by the way, the, word, the Bible says, you just heard me read it, that a lot of Jews were there, Christian Jews. Not one of them stood up at this critical moment. If this moment had been, if Paul had not stood up, this moment would have divided the Christian church into a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for the Gentiles. And both of them would have become totally distorted. The whole future of the Christian church was at this moment. And the only person that had the intestinal fortitude and the courage to stand up was the Apostle Paul. He takes on his Jewish Christian friends who had labored with him, including Barnabas, he takes on the Judaizers, and he takes on the Apostle Peter. Amen is right. We may not be sitting here today if he hadn't. It was a powerful moment. It's a watershed moment. And um, it flashes back it flashes back to Peter again. You know, these weaknesses tend to follow us around. Have you ever noticed that about your own personality? I've noticed it about mine. Like I tell people, it's the ones I can't see that worry me the worst. But they do tend to follow you around. And sometimes Jesus brings you back over the same ground again in order to strengthen you. This is a flashback to the night that he denied the Savior. Now, this is the same Peter that said, Lord, I'll, I'll fight them all. Drew the sword. He was going to. But when he was hit with ridicule and sarcasm, it hit that sanguine nature like that. And he did what he did. 
There's somebody else this reminds me of, and that's Aaron and the golden calf. By the way, when Moses comes down from the mountain on the golden calf, is Moses sanguine? He's mad. Now, I don't mean mad in a wrong way, but in a good way. He's, he's got a righteous indignation. There's a time for righteous indignation. And he stood up and he told Aaron, basically put him in his place, because Aaron was just like Peter. For their own reputation, they were willing to compromise the gospel. That's the reason sometimes in the Christian church, when you have leaders that stand up that are strong, and maybe not as gentle as we wish we were, we sometimes need those leaders. Moses was one of those leaders, and the Apostle Paul was one of those leaders. That doesn't mean they weren't nice people. They were nice people. They were good people. But they knew how to stand up and call a spade a spade. That's a good illustration. So uh, this was a, uh, a very, very crucial uh, moment because if this had been allowed to happen, this is what would have happened. The gospel then, you could, you could believe in Jesus, put your faith in Him, but you're always going to be challenged to add something else. By the way, much of Christianity is that way today. And I won't get into... I don't have to go there and be specific, but there are a lot of Christians today that believe in Jesus, bless their hearts, and we love them. But they're always having to add something else in order to have to be accepted. That's why we have the Dark Ages. Dark Ages did the same thing. The apostasy of Christianity did the same thing. All right. Still with me? Any questions? Okay. Um, this is going to get really, it's already interesting. Now, looking at verse 15, 16, knowing, now he makes a statement. Verse 16, he states the gospel three times in one verse. States it three times in one verse. See if you can pick out the three times. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You want me to divide it up for you? Okay, let's look at the first one. It's, it's three statements of the gospel all together here. Knowing that number one is knowing a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a concise statement. You, he would say to his Judaizing friends, you're not, you're not justified by that. We're not talking about sanctification here. We're talking about justification. Sanctification flows out of justification, and we always have to get that in the right, in the right drawer, so to speak. That's the first statement. And the second one, even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. That's the second one. And the third one is, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So if you just take that little last statement, that is just powerful. For by the works of the law shall no flesh. What does no flesh include? Who does that include? The entire world. Nobody's going to be justified 
that way. You can't be justified that way. By the way, this is a teaching class, not a preaching class. So if you have a question, comment, I do have the folk here with the mic, and they can, uh, can get that to you. So just raise your hand or wave, wave it. Uh, so uh, no flesh will be justified. And there's that word justification. Uh, and I'm going to talk about justification here in just a moment. Let's look at verse 17. For if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners, Christ is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Uh, before I talk about that text, let me talk about that word justification. Um, it, it's still amazing to me. I was just talking to somebody a little earlier here that had a friend who basically embraced Galatians by saying, oh, I don't need to be, I don't need the Sabbath, I don't need any of that, I'm not under the law, I can just escape the law. But why in the world, if the law doesn't matter, why then would you need justification? What is justification? Without a law, you don't need justification. Is that right? If the law doesn't matter, then justification doesn't matter. Justification only matters if there's a law and you've broken the law. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So you can't, you can't escape that. I mean, the whole context of it is, is clear. Now, let, uh, let's look at verse uh, 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ not therefore the minister uh, of sin? Uh, this was an argument that had been given by the, by the Pharisees. They said, look, 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 look. If you tell people that they are justified freely by their faith in Jesus, they will have no motivation to be good. And if we're going to run civil society, we're going to run the church, we're going to run the temple service, people have to be motivated to be good. And the only way to motivate people to be good is they have to earn something. And if you just give it to them freely, then they don't care. What do you think about that? Is that true? It's true in a worldly sense. A person needs to work. The, there's the statement, if he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Yeah, exactly. Paul made that statement, as a matter of fact. All right. So in a human, looking at it in a human uh, aspect, that is a true statement. It's true. And but we're not looking at it as a human statement. We're looking at it as Christ working in us. There's two different systems here. Right. And the, Jew, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees were saying, look, you have to motivate people to be good. You have to do that. And, and Jesus is saying to them, that's true. They have to be motivated, but you're motivating them the wrong way for the wrong reasons. They said, no, if there's a reward, they will be motivated. Jesus says, no, if they love me, they will be motivated. Huge difference. So motivation is at, the, is at the foundation of all these things. And this is why this argument came. That's why the Pharisees... And so their argument was, Jesus, you're taking away the motivation. So you and your apostles are actually the ministers of sin. 
You're causing people to sin because you've taken away their motivation. They just think if they put their faith in you, freely you give it to them, they're not motivated. Jesus says, you don't get it. If I forgive them at the cost of Calvary, they will love me. And when I ask them to do something, they will be so motivated to do it. I ask people, so which one would you rather have? Well, we know what we want. You're here because we want this system, am I right? We want this one with Jesus. We don't want this other system. Because this other system create. Uh, yes, she's got her hand up. Go ahead and give it to her. Um, this other system created Judaism. It created paganism. It created all the misery that we have in a religious world. Yes, please. So my question, um, is this like justification by works? So if I'm willing to be humble and accept that there's nothing I can do and it's only Christ in me that can do it, then I'm depending on Him in His faith and His power, like Romans 1, 16 and 17. But if I think that I can't accept it freely, then that means I'm prideful and I need to do it myself to earn it. So it, am I seeing that right? <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to get deep into this because this is where the rubber meets the road for every last one of us. Somebody, I was talking to somebody the other day. We were out doing some gardening or doing something. I forgot what it was. But something wasn't going right, and the guy says, you know what, I just haven't paid the preacher enough. Have you ever heard that? It's Protestant. I haven't been paying the preacher enough. What he meant by that is, I, 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 get, I need to get motivated to do more works and then God will bless me kind of a thing. Now, I think he was joking, but my point is that this is where the difference between success and failure comes. And if we love Jesus, uh, Moses got it right. So let me go back to Moses for just a second. And you can hear him. Deuteronomy, I can't give you the verse. But uh, what does the Lord require of you? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and in another place, in your neighbor as yourself. Jesus repeated that with the rich young, not the rich young, with the scribe. That's where it really starts. But how do we love Jesus with all our heart? What causes us to love Him? Listen, if you're facing eternal death and you're going to pay for your, your misbehavior and everybody's got it, somebody should have said amen. Nobody's going to escape this. And you see what Jesus did for you on Calvary's cross and you look at what it cost Him. And that is wiped clean How can you not but love Him? And if you love Him and you owe everything to Him, you can trust His love.
So he says, Jay, I need you to do such and such. Well, yes, I'm glad to do it because I love him. And we'll, we'll get, I, and I know the, the human struggle. We talk about some of the human struggle. Even after Christians, there's some struggle sometimes. But it really all boils down to two systems. And that one system is I'm going to trust the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, my mind, my strength, my salvation, and I love him for what he's done for me. Now let me go before the fall. It was the same thing except just the mirror opposite. Adam and Eve had not sinned. What was going to keep them from sinning? By the way, did they bring themselves into existence? Hello, evolutionists. You need to listen up. Did they bring themselves into existence? Did they make that beautiful garden? When Adam wakes up one morning and finds Eve, did he do that? Everything they could lay their eyes on, every pleasure that they enjoyed, every marvelous thing that existence brings and consciousness brings, all of that was given to them by the grace of God. Now, I know my evangelical friends will say, oh, that grace is only at Calvary. And just, there's a redeeming grace, and I know that. But... Adam and Eve and the whole human race owe our existence to God alone, and there's nothing we did to do it or to deserve it. So if they had, and you, if you look at the temptation, that's what Satan goes after. He goes after undermining that trust in God. And so if they had maintained that trust in God, of which the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a test, you had to test it, not a temptation, a test, and there's difference. If they had if they maintained that, then the fall would have never happened. But now we're on the other side, and the only way back is the same thing. Even in our fallen condition, is to love the Lord with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, which means we put our faith in Him and trust Him, trust Him with our life. And that's hard sometimes. In fact, I was talking to a young professional, I won't tell you, was in this conference several years ago. And we were talking about this very thing. And I said, if you surrender your life to Christ, put your faith in Him, then you can just trust Him with your life. It's a pretty deep conversation because a lot of us, including me at times, I'd like to keep back 10%. Do what I want to do. Nothing bad, Lord, just no. Jesus says, no, not 1%. You can't keep one. So we had that conversation and that... When, when I finally got a hold of that one day, years ago, many years ago, it, it caused a, a revolution in my own life. I came to the place, I said, Lord, I know I live in a broken world. I know I'm broken. I know that we live in a world of decay and death and dying. But I'm going to trust you with my life. 
regardless of what happens, I'm not going to complain. I might grieve. And that's okay. But I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to blame you because I know you love me. And someday when I stand on the sea of glass, I can look back and not have it any other way. Nobody can do that for you except you. And that's what the gospel really, in its bottom line, is really all about. There are many of you that have gone through difficulties and challenges and sorrows and grief. But the only place to find solace is to trust God with your life and believe He loves you. See, Satan is always trying to undermine your love for Him. Always. He either brings grief or tragedy or heartache or sorrow. But there's two systems. You can try to make, and there's much of the world, so somehow I, I need to qualify. No, you can't qualify. That's the bottom line. Or I can just put my trust in Him alone. Now, when you do this, there's going to be power there. We'll come to that power business as we get into, uh, more into this, uh, where the time goes here. But um, Okay, let's, let's move on. But these, that's a crucial, those are crucial questions. It's, that's why Galatians is still relevant today. It's relevant to me. It's relevant to me this morning. It's relevant to me right now and to you. All right. Um, Let's look at verse 18. Now, this is a text that I just really had. I, I really struggled with it. So what does Paul mean? And I thought and thought and prayed. Finally, I got it clear. You probably get it clear right off. But verse 18, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And that's what he's really saying to Peter. If I build again the things I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Okay, what is it then that he destroyed. What house did he destroy? Well, I'll tell you what house he destroyed. He destroyed this house that you can somehow qualify, that there's anything you can do to qualify. He destroyed that house. And he built a new house that said, you put your trust in him. So he says, look, if I come back to this, if I, if I take this house and I add to that circumcision, or I add to it any other qualification, all I'm doing is rebuilding this same system that I already destroyed. I use the Berlin Wall as an example of that. Weren't you glad? This will date you. But it was a joyful moment when that Berlin Wall came down. I mean, I grew up watching the news, people desperate for freedom, you know the stories, the heroic stories, people trying to escape there. We had a couple and their family that somehow got out of Czechoslovakia when it was under communism, and, and they came and stayed with us for a while. We were in another place, another state, and we enjoyed helping them and getting them started, but I never will forget their, their boy. He must have been about eight or nine years old, and and I had picked them up, and he was in the back seat, and I drove into the driveway, and I clicked the garage door 
you know, and the garage door started opening and his eyes got big. And I never will forget it. And he said, America. <laughs> um, so, but we know what that, that wall did. And when it came down, why would anybody want to rebuild that wall? Is there anybody today, is there any movement that you knew of that says, oh, let's go rebuild that wall. Let's get that Berlin wall back. Let's, let's cut off freedom. No, we don't want to rebuild that wall. So why do we want to rebuild this? Why does Christian apostasy want to rebuild this? Why does the human heart want to rebuild this? Yes, he's got his hand up. So where's my mic man here? Okay, good. Right over here. Why does the human heart want to rebuild that? <clears throat> Not answering that particular question, but I, I wanted to get an understanding in regard sure. to Paul saying, is Paul saying to Peter, once you take the love of Christ, you don't get to do your political thing. You don't get to participate in these things which would throw negative light on Christ. That, I, I really appreciate the question. And he's doing two things. One, he's telling Paul, Peter and the Judaizers, you are doing nothing but rebuilding that old wall that Jesus delivered us from, or that old house. And the other thing is the point you talked. He's saying to Peter, don't play politics with God's church. Do not play politics with the gospel. Uh, you're correct. Peter does not get to play politics with the church now that he's embraced Now that Christ. he's taken Christ. That's right. And I'd say that to my fellow ministers and to the local church. Local churches, people get political in local churches. I'm going to tell you something. It's not about you and me. I, I've got a hand here, and I'm going to finish this little comment here. This, it, it isn't about, it's not whether you're the elder in the church or whether you're, and praise God for our local elders. I praise God. I'm, one, I'm a local elder now and I'm, I'm enjoying it. And um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, many, many years ago at Camp Ensemble, there was some opening somewhere, and I don't know, I, maybe my name was on it or whatever, and it didn't work out that way, which is just fine. But I had a group of young guys, and they loved me, and I loved them, and they were mad for me, not at me. And I said, whoa, it doesn't matter. I said, it doesn't matter, because the church isn't about me. It's not about you. We can serve without an office. There's plenty of service to do. Now, if God puts you on a platform and gives you that opportunity, do it, but do it humbly. You know, I, I used to tell people, I'd say, just because you're the pastor of the church, that isn't who you are. Just because you have a certain office in the conference, that's not who you are. Who are you? And Peter, I think, was getting it mixed up. And this was to correct it. I tell you who you are. You're God's child. That's it. Is there anything better? 
And we serve. Praise God. We have to have an organization. Hallelujah. Elder Wilson, Ted Wilson, just reelected again as general conference president. He was here at a camp meeting some years ago. Maybe some of you remember we couldn't get him back because he's so busy everywhere all over the world. But we got him one time. And it was the last weekend of camp meeting. And I never will forget this. By the way, if you didn't hear his sermon last Sabbath, you can still get it. You should get it. Every Adventist should listen to that sermon. Closing of the last general conference. But I never will forget this. So we have Camp Teardown. Now that Camp Teardown, when we take this camp down, everybody at the end of the day, his tongue is hanging out. Okay. We're rolling, we're doing, we're, we're just, I, I can remember time year after year going home covered in sweat, not smelling good and the whole bit, and just exhausted. I didn't want to do anything except get a shower and go to bed. Elder Wilson, president of the General Conference, shows up that morning at our gathering work bee and says, just give me whatever. He ended up, we, we had him out hauling stuff. President of the General Conference hauling stuff. That's because he doesn't consider, he's not doing that to be political. Nobody was taking pictures. That didn't show up in the Adventist Review. It's just the person he is. He set a good example for all of us. And that needs to go right down through the local church. So thank you for your question. It was a great question. And um, yes, please. I'm so sorry, sister. Okay. I don't think it's on. So uh, let's just see here. Okay, it's not on. They're going to have to turn it on. It'll, it'll come. It should come. If not, I can repeat it. All right. Why don't you just tell me and, and I'll repeat it. Okay. My viewpoint on that... Um, oh, there it is. Okay. On that heart question, mm -hmm. the reason... One reason why we might want to rebuild our sinful heart is just because of us wanting to be in control and just part of our sinful nature to want to be in control. It's hard to give up control, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so I heard some people agree with that. But that is true. You give up control, but you don't give up control. By the way, God is a God of liberty. He's a God of freedom. But there's no freedom in sin. There's no freedom in hating your brother. There's no, sin, there's no freedom in lying. There's no freedom in that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and we'll get, get more into that. So, but we, we do have to give up control in order to find the appropriate kind of liberty that God yeah. wants us to have. We do have the Bible text, I can do all things through Christ. Yes. Who strengthens me. And it and comes from Him. It does come from Him. It's, good, it's a good, good point. Okay, let's, thank you so much for that. Let's, uh, let's go on here. And, um, and this is verse, oh, this is uh, probably one of the greatest texts in all of, of, of Scripture. Uh, I got to deal with verse 19, though. I got to thinking about this one. For through the law, and this, some of our evangelical friends will use this text. For through the law, for I, through the law, 
died to the law, that I might live to God. So it sounds like that through the law, I died to the law. So if I've died to the law, the law doesn't have any control over me, but now I, I can live to God. Now, if you just pull that out and look at it at the surface, you might, you might kind of pick up that kind of a, uh, of a thing. But think about this just a little bit. What, on what, is, what is the context the law does the killing here? What's the context? Why does Paul die? Why does the law do the killing here of the Apostle Paul? Why does it do that? Well, there's, there's only one reason for that, and that reason is that Paul is a sinner. Otherwise, the law would not have any problem. The law would look at you and say, you're in harmony with the rest of the universe. There's no problem here. But if you're out of harmony with the rest of the universe, you're a danger, you're a threat, you're a threat to civilization, you're a threat to the love and the joy and the peace, and even you're a threat to the life of the universe. Um, I think I've got this somewhere else. But, you know, the great controversy, I hope I don't forget my train of thought here, but the great controversy between Christ and Satan really boils down to this very issue, and that Lucifer is saying to God, listen, I can sin, I can do what I want to do, I don't have to obey your law, and I can still live. Life can still go on. And God is saying, Lucifer, that's not true. Life cannot exist, Lucifer, outside of my law. It cannot do it. That life, the law is actually making life possible. Don't you understand that? And Luke says, no, I don't understand that. And I'm as smart as you are. And I can do this. Well, we all know that Lucifer was wrong because look at us. So the law, the law is saying to the sinner, I, Paul is saying, I died uh, through the law. But then after that death, what happens? Now, in that, there is an assumption that this is repentance. What does it mean to die to the law? You can either die in the day of judgment, or you can spiritually die now. That makes sense? So when the law confronts you with your sinfulness and sinning, the law at that point is condemning you and promising you that if you don't repent, there's a day of judgment coming. And, and like the Apostle Paul, very straightforward, not pulling punches, it's not candy coating it. You either repent, and Paul says, so I died, I repented. Now some people say, no, I'm not going to repent, I'm not dying to you, law, I'll do what I want to. And the law says, okay, but I'm promising you day's coming. But if I die, if I repent, when I, when I repent, I die. But hallelujah, as I say in other places, and we'll say it again, God doesn't leave us dead because there's a resurrection. Otherwise, the last part of the verse wouldn't make any sense. There's a resurrection because he's now living to God. Does that make sense? So he, the law condemns him. He repents. He dies. He offers no Nothing to the law. There's nothing in his hand he can bring. He can't satisfy the law. Jesus comes along and resurrects him because of his repentance. And now he's alive in Christ. He lives a new life. Now that gives the gateway 
to Galatians 2.20, which is, I think, one of the greatest texts. This is a text you, we all need to repeat every day of our life. For I am crucified with Christ. Verse, I lost my place here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now that is a powerful, dramatic change. And I tell people, you know, I, I say this sweet kindness to our evangelical friends because for them, and we'll get more into this, this whole conversion experience is I had faith and this point, particularly the Calvinists, I had a, a point of faith here. I've been justified. They wrote it legal up there, and that's good. Amen to that. It is legally written. And as I had one person tell me, but after that, I can do anything I want to do. I said, you missed it. Faith is not one point in time. Romans, the just live by faith. Faith is, has to be a continuing. Your justification, my justification, is contingent on one thing alone. Not my performance. We'll get to performance. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about sanctification. We'll get there. Then on one thing, it's my faith in Christ. My continual faith in Christ. It's not an on and off again in a relationship. I'll get into that later. I can't get into everything right this moment. But I want to go back to this marvelous text. For I am crucified with Christ. They've given me 37 seconds and I'll still another minute. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is the heart of the gospel. It's the power of the early church. It will be the power of the closing scenes of earth's history, and God's church hasn't yet caught on to this. Totally. If you go to Revelation chapter... 14, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith. What's the next word usually? Of. Sometimes the word in is put there, I-N. Neither are there in the Greek. And have the faith, Jesus. This text alone tells us that theory cannot save us. Now, I want the truth. Amen? So we're not, not putting that down. And I know the people that say, just give me Jesus. Don't talk to me about the truth. Oh, come on. It's the truth that leads us to Christ. But the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that should be there all day long. For I am crucified with Christ. So my point back here is, 
we not only have the legal thing put in the books, but God actually comes in at justification and actually makes us born again. We become a new creature. And I say this with sweetest kindness. And I say it to Seventh-day Adventists, who I believe have the truth. That truth will not save you unless the living Christ is living in your heart. Unless this text is a reality. For I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, that's this morning, that's now, that's this afternoon, that's this evening. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That text came out of that dispute in Antioch. Paul stood up and God gave him that marvelous text that just sums up the essence of the gospel. And I hope you leave today with that ringing in your heart, for I am crucified with Christ. Not fun to be crucified. It's not fun sometimes to repent. Crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, talking about those two systems, that's why I want this system. That's why I'm motivated to be good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful Jesus. We cannot even understand how marvelous he is. Thank you for your presence here. And I pray you'll bless us as we go the rest of this day. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.